Apache Pinot is now 1.0. In this episode, I wanna give you a rundown of the most important features in the new release, including the game-changing multi-stage query engine and a bunch of important enhancements to how upserts work. Let's check it out in this episode. Now, going 1.0 is always a story in itself. It's a huge milestone for any project, but there are five main chunks of functionality I wanna cover. The multi-stage query engine, which is a game changer, a number of enhancements in the way upserts work, some improvements in the way null values are processed, enhanced pluggability for indexes, if you wanna build your own index types, and a new connector for Spark 3. Let's dive in with the multi-stage query engine. Now, Pinot's architecture supports low latency queries on batch and streaming data at high concurrency. It is an engine built to do that well. And it's optimized for queries that filter and aggregate. That's key. So it's not optimized, say, for joins. Most of the query processing in Pinot historically, occurs on the servers, that's a component in the cluster, and then results, you know, those queries are scattered to the servers, are, are gathered back by the broker, aggregated there, and, and pushed back to the client. And that works very well for those filter and aggregate queries, doesn't work so well for things like general purpose fact-to-fact -fact joins or joins between large tables. So here's our broker. There are these two components that I'm pointing out there, the query compiler and the result reducer. So here's our query. It's a good old filter and aggregate. Nobody gets hurt. That comes into the broker. It gets compiled. The broker looks at segment metadata and says, okay, these three servers are the ones that need to process parts of this query. So they get scattered to those servers. The servers do their work, send the results back to that broker, which then combines them together each one of those numbers, that's literally a scalar coming back from each server, gets sent to the broker, and those get averaged together into that one number, that one single scalar result. It's great when not much data is moving around, and the traditional architecture serves this well. But if you had large amounts of data coming back, like you might with a join, that result reducer is going to fall over. Just the broker is going to fall over doing all that I.O. It's not going to work. So here's what we do now. The multi-stage engine works like this. A query comes in to the broker, again, to a query optimizer, looks at the query, figures out how many stages are we going to need for this, and on what servers should they run. So right away, if you look at that query, we're interjoining order status and customers. So let's assume those are both really large tables. Now, some of the servers in the cluster are going to be handling order status. There are going to be some other group of servers in the cluster that are going to have the segments of the customer table. Those could be different sets of servers. And so those will do the work of being servers, send the results back, not to the broker, but to this new data exchange component. Now, this isn't a separate physical component. It's a part of the servers. But logically, they use this data exchange component to shuffle the data that comes out of those two base filter queries to get them back to a set of intermediary servers with the right sets of user IDs from both tables shuffled so that they show up in the same server, right? Because at some point, that join operation is going to be performed by an in-memory lookup, so those all need to be in the same place. So that join gets done there by those servers, and that doesn't go back to the broker yet. It goes to the data exchange layer again and back to another intermediary server where those results are combined. There is always in the final stage a single server that takes all the results and streams them back to the broker, and now the broker has joined results. 
And now with this mechanism, we're able to do performant joins between large tables. There are going to be other kinds of queries that are going to be unlocked with this mechanism, uh, subqueries, other kinds of things that wouldn't have worked well in the old architecture. Uh, the Pinot team has really taken the time to build this the right way as a general purpose engine to be able to do this kind of thing performantly going forward. Now let's look at upserts. There's a lot going on here, so let's dig in. Now upserts aren't new. Uh, at the time of this recording, they're almost three years old. They go back to Pinot 0.6. Uh, it's been sort of a differentiating thing that Pinot has done for a long time. And when you're ingesting streaming data, upserts only apply to, to real-time tables from streaming ingest. If you're ingesting entities, right, say like orders that are changing state out in the world, you're ingesting some stream of orders. This is really critical. So critical, I'd say, to have a credible claim at being a general purpose, real-time analytics database, you need to have a high-performance upsert story. If everything you ingest in the world is an immutable event, fine, you don't need upserts, but there's lots of mutable things in the world. Some of them are large in cardinality and they change quickly. So this is really a key feature. Pinot 1.0 has made four enhancements, delete support, metadata time to live, segment preloading, and segment compaction. And I want to tell you all about how those work, but first I have to take you through some animations of how upserts work, because all four of those are an enhancement on the basic pattern. All right, we're going to concentrate on a single server here. Upserts fundamentally add a metadata map, and that's an in-memory data structure. That's key. Let me show you what it does. I'm going to be ingesting streaming data here. Look, here's my streaming data. Now, a number of simplifications to make this work. That A, that represents my primary key. Those four hex digits, think of that as like a hash of all the, the rows in the table. This is just a row that's being ingested here. Okay, we didn't turn Pinot into a key value database, but I need something small to show you there. So this is a regular row, and to do upserts, you have to choose a primary key. I'm representing that as A. So we ingest that, and we write that to a segment. Now, in streaming ingest, you might be thinking, wait, Tim, where's the consuming segment? Again, a little bit of simplification here. We're going to write that key to segment one, and then in the metadata map, that key, by the way, we'll get a document ID, a doc ID, in this case, one. We're going to write in the metadata map that primary key A is segment one and doc ID one. We'll keep ingesting data. We've got primary key B. We'll write that the same segment. It'll get a doc ID. We'll update it in the metadata map. So that primary key B, like we know where that is. Now, it gets a little more interesting when things start to change. Like here's B. B shows up again. We write that to segment one. We don't overwrite the first time it was there. That's, it's, this is we're appending to a log. We don't get to overwrite things. So we're going to write that. It gets a new document ID, and we update the metadata map with that new document ID. So now key B, primary key B, still segment one, but it's doc ID four. It's the new version of B. So the metadata map does this. Uh, we, we can kind of work through a few more things being written, some more things being changed. So we'll update A, and you see now A is written to segment two, and so it has not only a new doc ID, because there's always a new doc ID, that's just monotonically increasing with every write, but it's being written to a new segment. So these things keep happening, and we keep updating our metadata map, and nobody gets hurt. So that is the fundamentals of upserts. Now, let's play with this a little bit and see how this has been improved in 1.0. First of all, delete support. Now, initially, upserts only allowed an update to an existing primary key. So that's like, you know, the first ingest is sort of like insert. The next one is like an update in SQL terms. That's why we, we call them upserts. If you're going to ingest, say, a change data capture feed from a relational database, well, things might get deleted. 
So we have to have a way of representing deletes. And historically, remember that metadata map we were just looking at, that holds the segment doc ID timestamp tuple for each key written. I wasn't showing timestamp before because it just would have been unwieldy, but it's in there under the covers. And that segment ID timestamp just points to the most recent update of a given key. Well, what delete support does is now allows us to basically write a tombstone there and say, hey, for this key, forget about where it's stored, it's just deleted. So here we've got a situation on a server, kind of like what we were looking at just a minute ago, and the primary key B comes through, but now it's being deleted. So what we'll do is we'll write that to the segment. We don't go back and look for previous occurrences of B and delete them. We can't do that. We'll write that to the segment, give it a doc ID, and now in the metadata map, mark B as deleted. We'll put basically a tombstone there that says now on the read path, when we look up to see where B is, we say, oh, B is deleted. We shouldn't show that in a result. So that's really it. A delete is pretty simple. We just write a delete marker and move on. Let's look at metadata time to live support. So back to our server and our metadata map. That metadata map there, it's great, but it could potentially take a lot of memory and not just any memory. In open source Apache Pinot, uh, the metadata map is stored on heap on the JVM. And so if this is a high cardinality primary key and a lot of values are being inserted and updated, that's gonna put pressure on the heap, could lead to more garbage collection pauses. Nobody wants to live that life, right? So that's always a thing to manage. You don't want big things on the heap in the JVM. So basically what this feature does is using the timestamp, which again, I'm not explicitly showing, but it allows us to say in, when we configure the table to say, hey, you know what? Uh, metadata map entries older than three days you can just expire them, get them out of there. So here C has moved past that three day deadline. It'll just be gone from the map. And we'll just keep taking writes. Here's an upsert to A, fine. That's still working, still updating the metadata map. But again, the oldest member of the metadata map, if it becomes older than our TTL, configured TTL value, uh, it will be removed. So it allows us to manage the size of that in-memory data structure when in your domain, entities are writable for some period of time longer than you want to be able to read them. Super handy thing, unlocks a lot of management possibilities when that applies to your domain. Let's look at segment metadata preload. Now, when a server starts up, it has to reconstitute its metadata map. And the naive way of doing that would be to look through every segment and find the newest version of each key and update that in memory and just kind of scan through, well, that's going to be a bit of a bummer. That'll take a long time. And the more data you're storing on a particular server, the longer your startup time is going to be. That's how it's worked traditionally. We'd like to improve that. Now, metadata snapshots, that is keeping a snapshot of that metadata map, have been around since 0.12, but they used to only be written on orderly shutdown, which is great, but sometimes you don't shut down in an orderly fashion. Sometimes you just die, right? So uh, they weren't a reliable mechanism for this purpose. Now they're flushed every time the consuming segment is flushed to a segment on disk. The metadata snapshot for that segment is written, so it's just a part of segment storage on disk. And just to keep things tidy, the previously saved snapshots are also rewritten to make sure no duplicate keys show up when we're loading the maps back in. Let me show you how it works. So there's our segment one. When it's written from the consuming segment, we're going to take the most recent value of each key and put them in our segment snapshot. Likewise, segment two is gonna figure out what the most recent value of everything is. But when it gets written, it's actually gonna go back to the segment one snapshot and rewrite it to remove any keys that also occur in segment two. This happens every time the consuming segment is flushed. We go back through the previous snapshots and clean them up 
so each key appears only once. So now when we're starting up, those snapshots have been persisted to disk along with the segments, so we can just go to the snapshots and very quickly rebuild the metadata map like so. We read in C, then A, then B, then D, then E, and we've got a complete metadata map with a much faster startup time. Segment compaction. Now let's return to some basics. As I said a minute ago, real-time tables are ingested first into this in-memory structure called a consuming segment and then flushed to segments on disk. Those segments themselves are immutable. Upserts only write new values, they don't delete old ones. So if I've got some row that's been upserted a thousand times, I may have 999 things lying around that I don't need anymore. And given that storage is not free, kind of have a problem here, which is that we might be spending more money on storage and more money on servers than we need to, and nobody's got time for that. So minions to the rescue, segment compaction is implemented uh, with a minion task. The basic idea is we're going to go through, look for old things, and rebuild new segments that only have the new things throw the old things out. Let me animate that. So this is a super simple example. Segment compaction could be a lot more radical than this, but we're just going to recreate uh, those two segments. So uh, we'll go here and we'll say, look, we got four and three and one, uh, those doc IDs, uh, because four is an overwrite of two. B was written twice. So we got rid of an old value. And here, we're just going to have two new values that survive, right? The delete of B and the most recent write of D could conceivably even compact those two segments into one. There are possibilities here, but the idea is in the background, we get to rewrite those segments and economize on storage in the presence of upserts. Now, if you're new to this, just the idea of null value support might strike some fear into your heart. Like, what do you mean you didn't support nulls? We've always been able to store nulls in Pinot, but query behavior has been a little on the idiosyncratic side. For example, for an integer valued dimension field, uh, if it was null, on read, either in a filter or a result coming back, it would be interpreted as the maximum possible negative integer. Uh, so you'd actually see that come back in results. For metric fields, the default value was zero. So think about, just to give you a couple of examples of what this might have done. So if you're filtering, for example, on an integer dimension field, and you're trying to select all rows where the value of that field was less than zero, well, if it's null, uh, that shouldn't be true because null doesn't compare to things. But since it would be read in queries as the maximum possible negative integer, well, that's less than zero, so those null results would come back. For, say, a metric value, if you're computing aggregate of that metric, uh, null-valued fields would show up as zero. So they would actually influence, say, the average um, as the number zero, which is not what null ought to do. Null ought to just kind of keep itself out of that aggregate calculation. And group by, you'll just see some more sensible things there. If you group by a column uh, where there are some null values, previously they would have shown up as integer min, now they show up as null. So we've always been able to store nulls, but now we get sensible null behavior on the read side as well. All right, let's look at the service provider support that's been added for indexing. Now, Pinot has always prided itself on being very pluggable, and that's one of the things that's led to the proliferation of cool index types in Pinot. It's built in a modular way, there are some well-defined interfaces, but in order to create a new index type, you will actually have to rebuild the code. It's not like you can just deliver a jar and have the new index type appear. Well, that's exactly what the SPI support gives you. Now, by building a new index, packaging it as a jar, dropping it in the right place, that's a class-loadable uh, directory in the class path, probably, and providing a little bit of configuration, 
you can literally deploy a new index type without rebuilding Apache Pinot. Now, this is probably not going to apply to very many of you. I can't imagine that many people are going to start building new index types. But this is one of those things that if you want to do it, you really want to do it. And this is a key area of innovation, needs to be a key area of innovation going forward for Pinot. More and more interesting types of indexes. This opens that field up to more people with just less friction. I think it's very, very important in that way. For now, this applies to single field indexes only. So something like the star tree index, that's an index over multiple fields. You wouldn't be able to do this way. But again, uh, an important door has been opened to innovation in the community and new potentially innovative index types. You know, right now, Pinot 1.0, the star tree index really is the coolest index in Pinot. I think with this feature in a few years, the community will have created indexes that might even make the star tree index look old fashioned. We'll have to see. Now, to do this kind of thing, you're going to have to read the docs. And in my experience, you're going to have to look at code too. But it all comes down to a class called index type. You'll create an implementation of that. And that will be where your, where your index is defined. Uh, you'll get an instance of that from the index service singleton. And, you know, the rest is not just details. The rest is a bunch of really hard database code. But the interface to Pinot has become simpler. And the way to get the index into Pinot at runtime through the Java SPI interface, uh, way more agreeable than rebuilding the code. Finally, the Spark 3 connector. Now, ingesting batch data is fundamentally a matter of creating segments, right? There's a command line utility that you can use to do that. And there are APIs from Hadoop, uh, if you're into that, or Spark to ingest and process and do computation over your batch data, directly create Pino segments with it. This API now supports Spark 3 in addition to Spark 2. So now in your Spark job, you can read data from other offline tables, from offline tables and real-time tables, or even other sources. Enrich those sources with one another, merge that data, do your own compute, and push segment files directly into the Pinot cluster from that Spark job in Spark 3. So great to be on board with Spark 3, a super cool enhancement, and an important way that some people use to ingest their data. And as usual, as you can see by this code here, when it comes to Spark APIs, they are pretty nice to look at. So uh, potentially, of course, it can get much more complex than this, but the, the, the minimum bit of kind of API framework that you need to satisfy is pretty easy to work with. And there you have it, Pinot 1.0. Again, gigantic milestone for the project, a number of very important features that unlock interesting new areas of functionality headlined by the multi-stage query engine. As always, I look forward to seeing how you process all these new features and I look forward to hearing what you build. And there you have it. If you feel compelled to help us spread the word and grow the real-time analytics community, you can give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you're watching us on YouTube, hey, subscribe and of course, hit that notification bell. And you can always share your favorite episodes on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever it is you do social media. Thanks, and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode.